We're in Esther chapter (coughs) 5 this morning. Verse 1. Now, it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's royal house in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. In chapter 4, Esther struggled through a rite of passage. This is how I see it. Perhaps for the first time, she found her voice. And it comes out when her cousin orders her to do something that goes against her own will. Um, she resists him and <clears throat> tells him, or asks him perhaps, do you realize what you're asking me to do? You're asking me to put my life on the line. And it's contrary to her will in the sense of her basic human need for safety and survival. Naturally, she's going to react to what he's suggesting that she do. Not suggesting, but ordering. Well, after a brief communication back and forth with Mordecai, she realizes that the fate of her people is more important than her personal interest. So she says, pray for me, or not pray, but fast for me, for three days, I'll do likewise, and then I'll go before the king. But something interesting happens. Um, this may be the first time she's ever been in conflict with Mordecai. Up until now, she's always done what he said. But when she, she finds her voice, she becomes a real queen, uh, not just a, a trophy wife, or a a figurehead who stands next to the king and looks good, but she becomes a a real person. The chapter last week ended with Mordecai doing what Esther commanded him. So there's this reversal. Instead of him commanding her, she finds her voice and she commands him. And he goes along with this. He accepts this. Um, He realizes He's asking a great challenge from her, and he wants to be supportive of her in it. Dana Crowley Jack had been a therapist for several years, and because she was a woman, lots of women were, were drawn to her for counseling, and she found that many women came to her because of depression. She said that in the United States, 
at the time of the writing of her book, that there are twice as many women struggling with depression than men. <clears throat> she also realized that there was a deficiency in her education, that the things that she was taught to say to depressed women and the progress she was supposed to walk them through wasn't effective. So she began to do research on her own and with other colleagues looked into women's depression. And what she discovered is that many women in depression described what they felt was a loss of self. They had lost their, themselves in their marriage. They had lost themselves in their child rearing. They had lost themselves in their careers. And a lot of this was because they had been trained from childhood that male authority was what really mattered and that they needed to comply with that. Uh, some of them, their mothers had taught them, make your husband happy and you'll be happy. And many of them grew up thinking, okay, I have needs, I have concerns, my husband doesn't want to hear them, uh, or he's not meeting them, but if I can just suppress them and pour myself completely into this marriage, eventually my husband and I will enjoy intimacy with each other and that will be the payoff. And some of them after five years or 10 years or 20 years realized we're never going to be intimate. And now they began grieving, not the loss of the relationship so much as the fact that they've lost themselves. Who am I? I've poured myself into this and now um, I can't find myself. And Dr. Uh, Dana Jack said, voice is an indicator of self. Speaking one's feelings and thoughts is a part of creating, maintaining, and recreating one's authentic self. To be willing to risk arguments, one has to believe in the legitimacy of one's own point of view. And if there are women who have been trained not to trust their own point of view, but to defer to the male authority's point of view, whether it's father, professor, husband, boss, um, then in the process of, of losing their voice, they lose themselves as well. And that's what I mean by Esther found her voice. She is no longer a stock character in the story, a beautiful young queen. She's now a real person who's thinking and acting and speaking and ordering and commanding. Now, with that in mind, think of the irony that the last words we heard her speak were, if I perish, I perish. Only um, though her life is no more secure than it was when she first started the conversation with Mordecai. Now her fate is in her hands, not in the hands of someone else. And she's doing this by her own volition, not by the command of Mordecai. 
After three days of fasting, the critical moment came. And the setting here is more descriptive than we're used to in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament doesn't usually give us lots of details about a person's appearance, the uh, way a particular room is arranged, a landscape, uh, these wonderful details that help our imagination enjoy uh, fiction writing or bio biographical writing are mostly missing, except here in Esther, especially in this part. <clears throat> For example, uh, he mentions what she's wearing, that Esther put on her royal robes. Why include this? Well, <clears throat> maybe it's because that her royal robes were her connection to the king. Um, he is in his royal house, sitting on his royal throne. In fact, three times the word royal, though it's, it's not reflected here in the New American Standard, three times the word royal comes up uh, in regard to the king in just these first couple of verses. So she puts on, literally, her royalty. She's wearing her royalty into the presence of her king. And her royalty sets her apart from everyone else in the king's court. Sets her above everyone else in the king's court. And creates a direct link between her and the king. She walks into that room. No one else can connect with her but she can connect with the king, and he can connect with her. So here's that, you know, that magic circle around the two of them. And when the king looked at her, he saw not Esther, he saw Queen Esther standing there at the entrance in her royalty. She stood at the threshold opposite the entrance of his royal house, his royal chamber. And the word opposite could be over against. In other words, the king has her in a direct line of sight. And that's important because when he saw her, she obtained favor in his sight, literally his eyes. So seeing her in her royalty, he favors her and extends to her the, the symbol of his acceptance of her. And right at that moment, her life is spared, you know, at the very least. Now, I assume she was not allowed to speak first. You may approach the king as basically what the gesture means. But it's possible to communicate without words. And maybe she does this just in her bearing and, and the way she approaches him. Then he addresses her formally. Um, and and the, the beginning of the Hebrew is not like what we read here um, where it says, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? It's more like, what to you? Uh, or what's up with you, uh, Queen Esther? Notice the, the formal address. And she says, if it please the king... And this must be a customary introduction because every time someone speaks to Xerxes, they begin, if it please the king. But we've also seen that this is a hinge on which the plot turns. Whenever it's spoken, 
something changes. So those who are hearing the story told and uh, have heard in one sitting from the beginning to this point are alerted to the fact something's about to change. She's about to make a suggestion or make a request, and it's going to turn things. So we're all primed, because we know why she's there. She's there to beg for the lives of her people against the evil machinations of Haman. I wonder if fasting for three days is what gave her the idea to approach the king with a feast. I know that when I fast, all I can think about is eating. <laughs> I would love to be you know, more devout, uh, you know, more holiness-minded when I fast, but really I think about M&Ms the whole time. <laughs> um, you know, I think about that big meal I'm going to have. Uh, and maybe fasting, she's thinking, boy, am I hungry. Well, you know, the king, he's always hungry. What if I fix his favorite dish and invite him over for a feast? And it's kind of cool that stepping out of her fasting, she can go straight to feasting and, and to share this with the king. Now, she has replaced Queen Vashti. Remember that? And Queen Vashti risked her life by not making an appearance when summoned by the king to his feast. Esther is risking her life by making an appearance, having not been summoned by the king. And she's prepared for him a feast. Verse 4, Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in, your, in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. So she chickened out. <clears throat> Esther surprises us. Tension has been building underneath the story, and now that she is face-to-face -face with the king and Haman, we expect it to erupt into open <coughs> conflict. But instead of erupting, she acts as if everything's cool with her and the king and Haman. And, um, and it kind of fizzles at this point. At, at least it's not what we were led to believe. Now, verse 5 is simply a transition from one scene to the next. The, the king hurries Haman to the queen's quarters. And again, wine is flowing. And, and we've seen this, what, this is like the third or fourth time so far in the book. And when wine flows, emotions are loosened. 
they, they loosen their grip. Uh, sometimes uh, the wine dulls the emotions. Uh, and some people will start drinking for that reason, to self-medicate. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to think this right now. I don't want to deal with it. And uh, so they, they dull the emotions. But you know, if you drink enough, just the opposite occurs. You um, exasperate the emotions. You intensify them. And growing up in a pastor's home, we used to get these phone calls like at 2.10, 2.30 in the morning, and after the bars closed and people got home and it was, hi, is Pastor Chuck there? Yes, but he has church tomorrow, so he can't come to the phone. Oh, of course, oh, I'm such a bad mom. <laughs> and, you know, here I am, a teenager, going, well, okay, tell me how bad you are. <laughs> you know, um, oh, my kids, they don't even want to be around me anymore. Okay, well, you know, they probably have good reason. And I don't even want to talk to you right now. <laughs> um, okay, so I know how, how it works. Um, they're drinking wine, and... Um, this is going to have an effect on them emotionally and psychologically and socially um, as it does. The king asks her again her, petition, her petition and request, and he makes the promise, whatever it is, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Now, this is no doubt hyperbole. Um, you know, he, he's making a grandiose promise, um, but it's almost like an IOU that he doesn't sign. Uh, in other words, don't you dare try to <laughs> ask for half my kingdom. Um, ooh, I just had a terrible thought. <laughs> How nice it would be to only have to give away half of it um, <clears throat> instead of the whole thing. But, uh, but she's not interested in half of his kingdom. She's only interested in the Jewish population. That's what she wants. That's what she wants to save and guarantee and protect. But instead of telling him that's what she wants, she delays making her request, and no reason is, is given for that. So I'm not going to speculate, but I do notice this, that it allows Haman to totally misread the situation. Oh, wow, I'm going to be invited back, or I have been invited back, to the, the king and the queen's private meal, private feast, and, and I'm the only one. I'm such a lucky guy. So now he's going to be off guard, oblivious to what's been set in motion. And the rug even now is being moved from under his feet. He has no idea. Verse 9. It, it gets even better than that. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared, 
and tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 50 cubits high, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, and so he had the gallows made. Haman's perfect day is spoiled. He leaves the palace in high spirits, but when he passes the king's gate, he sees Mordecai. And we have seen already how anger drives the plot. Um, it, It energizes the characters to act. What a difference. Queen Esther does not act. She waits. Haman has to act now. So he he comes home and he calls his friends together. They turn out to be his counselors and his wife. And um, of all of them, only his wife is mentioned by name. This is unusual. A lot of times in scripture, especially the Old Testament, the women are not named only the men, like Samson's mom, what was her name? Her name was Manoah's wife. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's how she's referred to. She's anonymous. In fact, it's an interesting study, the people who are left anonymous in scripture. Zeresh is named. In fact, her name occurs twice, when he calls her and then when she and the others give him advice. And this happens twice in the book. In in, uh, the next chapter, uh, she will be called, invited again, and she'll listen, and she'll give advice, and her name will be mentioned twice. And I think that's significant, but I'm not going to go into that today because I don't really care. Um, So Haman has his wife and friends there, and he boasts of his many successes and his fortunes, and how many sons he has, uh, which in that culture and time is, is, is a big deal. And the climax of it is, even Esther the queen invited me to go to this banquet and has invited me back tomorrow. And his mistaken impression of what that means is thick with irony. The joy that all of these wonderful things could have given him drained completely out of him when he sees Mordecai the Jew sitting. Not standing, not bowing, but sitting and refusing to move when he passes by. Even though the king's given a command that when Haman passes by, everyone should bow. Mordecai does not. And so he, he tells his wife and friends this, And it seems like the wife, Zeresh, is speaking for everyone when she says, why let Mordecai upset you? He's doomed already. In fact, let's make him the first casualty in the genocide of the Jews in Persia. Build a gallows and in the morning go to the king who's already given you permission to kill all the Jews and 
get permission to hang him on the gallows. And, and I see this, now, by the way, the gallows, the, the word here is simply tree. And in Persia, the gallows would generally be just a pole sticking up out of the ground, and the criminal to be executed was impaled on it. So, and then the body left there. Um, so, <clears throat> let's make him the first casualty. Uh, send him from the gate to the gallows. And this, this pole is ridiculously high. It's 75 feet high. And you just wonder, how tall would it have to be to satisfy Haman's hatred, or Haman's hatred for Mordecai? Well, with Mordecai out of the way by noon, Haman could go joyfully with the king to the feast. And he's pleased with this counsel. In fact, he's not only pleased with it, he immediately goes out and orders that gallows to be made, or that pole to be planted in the ground. Uh, in other words, he's immediately implementing the plan that had been given to him. He can't wait. He has none of Esther's patience. He has to act now. Great place to leave him for this week, huh? Another cliffhanger. What will happen to Haman in our next exciting episode of Esther? Um, so just for a moment, when I'm walking by the ocean, maybe walking Kona, or used to be when I jogged before the grandkids lived with us, but when I'm down at the ocean uh, just watching, I'll, I will look at the wave. And generally, I'm, I'm looking for one that looks like a good one to ride. And I imagine myself out there right now on my boogie board, um, getting in the way of surfers as they use me for a launching rail and, um, or speed bump or whatever. And, uh, but I'm thinking, ah, oh, there's, a, there's a good wave. And every once in a while, I'll notice someone surfing out there, sitting on his board, and I'll, I'll wonder, why did he not take that wave? That looks like a perfect ride. Why did he let it go by? And I remind myself that when you're in the water, you have a different perspective. And you have a better idea of what that wave is going to do. If it's going to close out, if it's going to go left and you want to go right, if too many people are getting on it, uh, or if it's just going to fizzle and, and not, uh, not break at the right time. So he's in it, and he can see it, and he can also sense it in his body. No, it doesn't feel right. I'm not taking this one. And you perhaps have seen someone at the top of a wave just before dropping in instead backs out. And that's because he can see where this is going to go, or he or she. <clears throat> that trained sensitivity to the waves comes with practice. And... Um, from spending hours in the water and years reading and writing waves and missing classes at school and not having a job and <laughs> all those other things that go into making great surfers. Um, but even with all that practice and, and, and sensitivity to the waves, a, a veteran surfer can make a mistake, can get too excited and 
drop in too soon or wait too long. Tr sometimes trying to drop in too soon means paddling for half a mile before you realize this isn't going to break. Uh, so we watch Esther in this story in the same way. Why didn't she drop in? The king's opened his heart to her. He's had some wine. He's ready for her request. You know, he's ready to hear anything from her. Why doesn't she drop in? And, and I would say she knows better than we do if this is the right time, if this is the right wave. And she is waiting and watching. Do those two words sound familiar? She's waiting and watching. And that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples they needed to be doing. You need to be waiting and watching in prayer. <clears throat> there can be a too soon and a too late. There can be a too little and a too much. And unlike Haman, she doesn't let <clears throat> impatience get the best of her. She's going to wait for the perfect time. In the New Testament, there are three key words that are used for time. Uh, now, that's aside from words that relate to eternity. Um, <clears throat> the first one is chronos. And now I'm going to repeat some of the stuff we've heard Romuald say, those of you who have sat through his uh, DVDs with us. But uh, the first word is chronos. And chronos is all of time from beginning to end. It's the succession of, of moments. Uh, my chronos is from my birth in Tucson, Arizona, to my death, wherever that might be. I hope Hawaii. Um, but chronos is chronology, or it's chronometer. Did you know that's what a pocket watch was called at one time? Um, it's the passage of time as we normally experience it in our lives. H-O-R-A, hora, is specific blocks of time. And it can refer to days or years or springtime and summer, you know, seasons. It's, it's specific blocks of chronos. So chronos can be divided in this way. Jesus asked his disciples, are there not 12 hours in a day? And he's talking about how they typically perceived the period of daylight. 12, 12 hours of daylight broken, uh, or you know, this time period, half a day, broken into one-hour segments. That's aura. And sometimes Jesus says, my, my aura has not yet come. My, my time, um, my specific block, my moment. The third word is kairos. And kairos is a unique moment in time. It's when a fruit is fully ripened. It's not unripe. It's not overripe. It's time to eat. It's when the harvest comes. It's the opportune time or the divinely appointed time. As Paul says, for while we were still helpless at the right kairos, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Someone has said that Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, for every time there is a purpose and a season under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's kairos. 
It begins with chronos, but then says there is a season, there's a kairos, a kairos to be born, a kairos to die, and so on. We are always in chronos. We are, we are looking at our watch, at the clock, at the calendar. And it takes something big to snap us out of chronos time, um, to make time stand still, or to, to cough up an unforgettable moment. You know, it, it lasted only for a few seconds, but I'll never forget. It has to be pretty big. Otherwise, we're so stuck in Kronos, we walk right past Kairos every day without even seeing it. We're looking at our watch. We're looking at our day timer. What's scheduled next? What, what's the next hora, the, the next appointment? Kairos is God's time. It occurs at the intersection of chronos and eternity. So if we see chronos moving like this, kairos breaks into it like this. So there's that, that moment, that place where eternity intersects with the chronological time of our lives. When Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, perhaps you came to royalty for such a time as this. Again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew says kairos. Such a kairotic moment as this. This is, this is the moment. This is special. This is, is the moment when God comes near and gives us favor and grace. And how do we wake up to that? Well, Contemplative prayer, that this silent prayer that is God's gift to us, is waiting and watching. We wait in silence. We don't have to speak because we want to listen. We watch, we observe, we, we bring awareness to the thought that goes through my head. It's, it's much different to be aware of my thought rather than to be in my thought, unaware that I'm even thinking. But if I can place myself in a movie theater looking at the screen and let my thoughts be projected onto that screen, now I'm aware that I'm thinking those things. And then I can ask, why am I thinking that? I think I'll not think it anymore. And if I were Descartes, I'd disappear. But what happens in waiting and watching is that with trained practice, like the surfer who knows the right wave, it deepens our awareness of what's happening within us and around us, our awareness of what we feel and what we see and what we hear and the way touch affects us and the way aromas affect us and taste. through slowing down, slowing way down. That's why I think, oh, I've, just, I've been here for 10 minutes and I've done nothing. Oh, but you've done everything. If you've, if you've awakened, even intermittently, because all of us right now, we get carried away with thoughts and we have to bring ourselves back. But it's the coming back that's important. Not, not the going away. We're the prodigal who's gone away. We bring our thoughts back. We come to our senses and return to where we're supposed to be. 
and it, it deepens our awareness and we receive grace to notice more. And when we have more awareness about ourselves, we begin to develop more awareness of others. We look at them and their body language and their facial expressions and we know what they're feeling. Because now we're not so in ourselves that we can't see other people. Awareness does this for us. It takes us out of ourselves. And most importantly, there are times when we can say, ooh, God is near. How do I know? It's that trained sensitivity. This is the Kairos moment. And I want to be there. I want to be there as fully as I can. And uh, um, I can never do it perfectly, but it doesn't matter because it still makes a difference. It still changes me. I would suggest that a prayer retreat can be very helpful. Not a prayer conference where you go to learn about prayer. Even as praying is always better than reading a book about how to pray. Praying, you know, the practice of prayer gets you further in it than the study of the practice. <coughs> but a weekend prayer retreat where you're constantly being sent out to be alone with God and to just listen, which at first can be excruciating, but after several hours and a couple of days, or if you have the leisure to go for a week, oh, everything is different about it. The skill you've been practicing becomes better honed, and you're able to, to be there. And you start noticing that this kairos that intersects chronos is happening every moment. And all you have to do is wake up to it. In Jesus Christ, time and eternity are combined. He's the intersection of humanity and deity. And so it's not surprising that that eternity should open up over Jesus and that the Spirit should descend upon him and the Father should speak to him. That, that in this moment, the, this moment of incredible kairos, um, all of nature and the supernatural converge. And Jesus will always be our touchstone with that greater reality, that other dimension that encompasses all and transcends it at the same time. He is always present in our Kairos moments. When we come to that intersection, Jesus is always there at the intersection. And, and I want us especially to look for him. And the reason why I say that is because there's a lot of, of Christian spirituality in history that simply doesn't make, uh, uh, make a, a lot to do of Jesus, almost like he's not there, and um, that it's all about the exercises and the asceticism and the, the reading and rereading and rereading of Scripture and the fasting and the vigils. And really, it's all about Jesus Christ. It always has been, it always will be. 
And if we recognize the Kairos moments, and if we are in those Kairos moments, then we will know that Jesus is present here and now. I want to tell you a secret that I learned from the Gospels. If you believe Jesus Christ is here and now, he is here and now. If you don't believe, the door doesn't open. But if you believe that he is here and now, the door opens. He is here with us. And just as important, he is here for us. Would you stand, please? May we go now in the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, to discover Kairos moments, to find our voice and become our true selves in the one who calls us to himself and to his service. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.